Today, I am delighted to be joined by Alessandra Schiara. Alessandra, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Thank you for having me. So Alessandra is the Social Policy and Public Affairs Manager at a charity called St Vincent de Paul. Alessandra, I'd love to start by hearing, before we get into talking about this quite hard-hitting issue, like if I gave you a magic wand today, what changes would you like to see on the topic that you're actually working on? As, as campaigners, we leave that um, to the very end and we have all of these discussions about issues and problems and we don't talk enough about the world as it should be. So if I had a magic wand, I'd like to see a world, a country to be specific, um, which had a fair and efficient asylum system, a country which welcomed people regardless of where they came from, their nationality, their ethnicity, their religion, that uh, welcomed people really, a country which was positive and had was an asylum system that was based on positive values. Um, we could extend that, extend that even more. I'd love to see a, a country which, um, in which there wouldn't be low wages, there wouldn't be discrimination, where people, most importantly, where people wouldn't be held back from thriving and from settling in their communities, uh, a country where the systems and the, the procedures and the processes enabled them to do whatever, um, whatever they, they wish to do um, and wouldn't hold them back. I love this concept of, of a sort of generous welcome. And I presume and I infer and I guess I know based on our conversations and what's out there in the in the sort of public domain that we're probably quite a distance away from that world. How before we get into the, the sort of details of, you know, some incredible humans and their journeys to safety or apparent safety here in the UK, how would you characterize the system um, as a whole at the moment? The system is a very hostile one at the moment. Uh, it's, a, it's a hostile one and it's a system which I think is designed really uh, deliberately to hold people back. It's a system which is incredibly bureaucratic and procedural. And uh, yeah, really at the, the bottom line is that it's designed to not allow people to settle in and thrive in their communities, not allowing people to find um, the, the jobs that they want and, and meet their local communities. Um, and, and it's very much a system. And I talk about a system, but systems are designed by people. So I want to stress that the system is designed by people, which is in a very simple term is is holding people back and it's um deliberately cruel and this idea i mean you you've you sort of beautifully bookended your comments there with the idea of deliberate cruelty and it sounds like it's a a, a positive choice actually to potentially treat people in injurious ways in harmful ways and like what sort of, again, talking at a system level, what sort of harms are we actually seeing for the people that are going through this system, Alessandra? Yes, that's that's a great question. Um, we see all, all, 
all kinds of issues. Um, so one of the things um, to get really right right into it, one of the things that the SVP, um, my organization, the St. Vincent de Paul Society is working on at the moment is supporting uh, thousands of migrants, refugees and people seeking asylum who have come here to seek safety um, and, and, and serenity and, and a, a good family life really. And that the system that they face is, is a hostile one. And the issues range enormously. Um, I've spoken to many people who are currently staying in hotels, who are being left um, very much on their own. Um, and if it wasn't for the support of local communities, local charities, but very often it's local people, local communities, um, they wouldn't have very much. Uh, there are problems with isolation. There are problems with lack of support for mental health. Uh, there's a financial issue as well. Many people are, many of these people in, in hotels are living on roughly eight pounds a week to cover all of their basic needs. Um, Could you just so say that again, how many pounds a week? Eight pounds? Roughly eight pounds a week um, to to cover uh, their basic needs. Food is, is often provided in, in these hotels that we're talking about, but everything else from toiletries to baby clothes, baby food, clothes, uh, money for transport is not included. And we're talking about hotels which are often in very remote areas. Um, and I'll go on maybe later on to, to talk about a couple of people that I spoke to whose, whose stories really shows what some of these issues are. And I mean, I, I think, you know, you look back at history and you look at um, how people have have often been most disadvantaged. And, and, you know, it seems like a truism, but probably also backed by so much historical precedent that actually one of the, the most painful things to do is to actually other people and to isolate them, to say these are people that for some reason we should be afraid of, and then to actually isolate those people and take away their agency. And and what sort of impacts are you seeing the isolation having on the people that you support at St. Vincent de Paul? Um, uh, in, in a number of ways, really. And I think you, you touched on the issues of agency. That's a really important one, I think, because we often talk about very practical issues that people are having, um, not very much money to pay for basic need, but agency, we don't often talk about that. Um, so one of the, the women that I spoke to, for example, actually several women, several mothers I, I spoke to, in some cases of Syrians, some case Afghans, um, they talked about uh, not being able to have a kettle in their room in the hotel. And this is the, these were mothers with young babies, and they, when I talked to them, they explained that every time they needed some uh, hot water or, or, or heat up a bottle uh, for hot milk for their babies, they had to go down into the lobby in winter, wait in a cold room for a member of staff to boil some water and give it to them. And this, for me, really, really shows the lack of agency um, the agency that we're taking, that our government is taking away from these people. And I'm not a mother yet, but I've got friends who are mothers. Um, and many of them will tell me, I, 
you know, I know how to care for my baby and I, you know, not being able to have something as simple as a kettle tells me that you don't trust me to do my job and look after my baby. So I think this is, you know, a really small example, a, a, a small story, but I think it really shows how the system is really taking power away from people um, who are just like us, uh, really just like everyone else. And it sounds from what you're saying that it's almost as if the system is not just based on, and these are my words rather than yours, but not just based on a, a, a sort of a fear and a hostile environment, not just based on a sort of restriction of liberty, not just on economic penury, but also on sort of a, a, a misogynistic sort of a, approach and a lack of a human centeredness to the way in which it's actually supporting people who are going through these situations. And do you see a difference in terms of the experience of men and women that are going through the, the system that you've described so eloquently to this point? I think there are elements to that, definitely. And there are there are always going to be challenges, uh, more challenges faced by, by women rather than men. I think that applies to all of us, really. Um, so there's there's certainly an issue with that, uh, but there are also many issues which apply to uh, to everyone really. And again, I'm, I go back to this to, to the sense of agency. And one of the cases, one of the people that I spoke to, um, it was a really skilled carpenter from Syria, um, and he showed me some really beautiful pictures of the woodwork um, that he was uh, that, that he was working on in Syria. And he is now looking uh, for a job here, um, but as an asylum seeker, he is not allowed to work. And that again goes back to the system that the government has created, which does not allow asylum seekers to work. Uh, it prevents them from, from working. And he's uh, stuck in this limbo where while he is grateful that his, his young daughters can go to school, he is also not given the, the tools and the opportunity to put his his experience and and impassion um to into practice yeah and i mean the, the that sort of metaphor of the tools seems so apt for somebody who literally works with their hands in a country that is crying out for skilled everything everything from carpenters to sort of you know um healthcare assistants to to doctors to everything like we need people and then there's kind of this ideological sort of barrier that actually prevents people from having that economic sort of self-determination while their while their their story and while their case is being looked into. And it seems very, you know, it 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 chimes a bit with my grandparents' story because when my grand, I think I said to you when we spoke before, Alessandra, but my grandparents were, um, my grandmother was on the run for three years in Poland, in Nazi-occupied Poland during the Second World War with my two uncles. And actually, she eventually managed to escape in a, on a ship steeled in a water canister on the side of a boat. And actually, they stood for dark, in, in the darkness in water for 72 hours with a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. And actually, when I think back to why I do the work that I do, you know, and I've been to the jungle refugee camp and I've been involved in quite a few humanitarian response efforts. And it's just, you know, it's it's standing on the shoulder of these people who've made these incredible journeys. And I I guess we seem to discount 
like just the sheer grit and determination it takes to get to the UK because there's such fear whipped up. I mean, these are people who are literally some of the hardest, most industrious, most hardworking, most determined humans to have ever lived. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And, um, you know, there are often uh, there are often these kind of debates. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that, you know, we we must not forget that um, they are regular, regular people, just like, um, you know, just like everyone else. And, and what's really struck me from meeting with a lot of our members and a lot of volunteers who, who do this work and and support people in hotels, whether that's, you know, teaching English or organizing cricket matches with with kids, um, you know, whatever that is, is the shared experiences of, of these people. And actually one of my favorite stories is um, uh, is the, uh, talking to a one again a Syrian woman who came here while pregnant. She ended up giving birth while still waiting for her asylum application. And during her time here, she um, she uh, she was given support by the by the local SVP in the form of English classes and and just general support. But during this time, they they ended up becoming friends. One of our volunteers and and this woman. And when she gave birth, she actually asked. Um, this member to to be uh, to be present when she was giving wow. that in in the room next door because they became friends so they had this this sort of shared experience and to me that's that's a really lovely story that it's not often um, which I think is deliberately um, avoided by the mm. media often because mm. there's this temptation to to create this us and them while that that's not really true. Mm. And I know that that in our pre-chats, like we we really don't want to give any sort of airtime to the to the counter argument. There's no sort of there's literally no excuse for any of that. And you know, my my grandmother lived under Nazism, and then her the rest of her family lived under communism. So I have no truck with those sorts of extremes. But I wonder if you could just touch very briefly on some of the sort of you know added pressures that there are for people in hotels because you know we've talked a little bit before about the fact that it can be there can be harassment of people and this sort of thing and I wonder if you could just very briefly touch on some of the things that also make people's lives very very difficult Alessandra. Yeah absolutely um, and I agree with you um, I don't want to give um, much airtime and um, to those people but that is an issue um, it's ha- it has happened, unfortunately, on uh, a couple of occasions. Uh, not many, thankfully, but um, hotels in which we've we've worked have faced some local opposition um, and resistance. But what I would say to that, and I think it's important to acknowledge that, and it's important to mention that, at the same time, um, we have seen overwhelmingly more support for these people. Um, so while there was a small minority um, who, um, who, didn't, who didn't welcome these new arrivals, the, by far the vast majority of local communities up and down the country, we work all over England and, and Wales as well, have welcomed these communities spontaneously. And for me, that, that's really crucial. It wasn't organized. It was a spontaneous um, burst of welcome 
people self-organized. We supported them in some capacity, but most of the time our members just went ahead and organized all of this support and, and English classes and food and dinners and cricket matches and transport just out of their own kindness. So I think that there are, you know, those those negative um uh, th those, those, uh, yeah, those, those negative groups. But I think that that's a minority, and I think that it's it's important to to remember that. Um, but at the same time, there are still many issues that people um, that people face in these hotels. Um, we have done a lot of work with Afghans, um, specifically in in many of the hotels, and I should say this is um, is a slightly different from other um, asylum seekers which we've talked about because many of these Afghans have been resettled here under specific resettlement schemes which have been which are managed by the government collaboration with the with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees they were resettled here after the the Taliban takeover that we we've all seen in the news uh, they were resettled on a very specific scheme with specific conditions and support. But what has happened is that while they were resettled and brought to safety in the UK, they were left with very, very little close to no support from government. So in some of the cases, some of the people that I've met, as I mentioned before, were hosted in very rural uh, hotels, very rural locations, often about 45, at least 45, 50 minutes walk to the nearest town centre. Um, I've mentioned about the eight pounds a week that they often, you know, that, that they get, that is not enough to cover transport. They are provided with uh, no, uh, virtually no mental health support. And we're talking about people who have ex uh, um, escaped uh, an extremely brutal and, and violent regime. Um, very little uh, practical support, and they often face, uh, going back to the system uh, that doesn't allow people to thrive, they're faced with extremely frustrating bureaucratic issues. Um, for example, in many of the cases, uh, people were allowed to work. So in the case of these Afghans resettled, they do have the right to work, but many were waiting for months and months for their proof, their paper proof that they could work. So they were left in limbo. Uh, several of them I spoke to had job offers that they had that they couldn't accept because they couldn't prove that they had the right to work. So when I talk about the system uh, as, a, as a deliberate decision by, by, by people, by policymakers, not to allow people to thrive, this is the impact that it has on people. Yeah, and it's... It, it, it always struck me as very ironic that you know one of the architects of the of the hostile of the original hostile environment was Theresa May, and then in uh, in the jungle refugee camp, the main boulevard uh, boulevard in inverted commas I won't do the air quotes, but was known as Theresa May Boulevard, um, and you know it's kind of. I often feel hearing you talk and, and you know, having seen that sort of self-organised action up close in so many situations that while the government thinks they have a really good handle on where the British people are and so create this sort of Kafkaesque nightmare, actually the British people are just like, yeah, we don't really have any sort of, we don't really care about that. We just want to look after people and welcome people and actually 
bring them in. And so it's almost like the British people are actually a long way ahead of where the government thinks we are. And I guess I'm we're coming to, close to the end of, of this chat, Alessandra, and I it's gone so quickly and I could literally chat with you about this for hours, but that would be awkward for everyone and probably weird for you when it's like midnight and we're still talking. But I want to hear just two final things from you. And one is, what do you do to keep your own sanity and maybe you don't but i would love to just hear maybe it's advice you have for other campaigners about like keeping their sanity even if you feel sometimes that your own is 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 jeopardized let me stop talking alessandra the microphone is yours <laughs> thank you um that's another great question and i always welcome any any advice on that and any campaigners honestly uh what keeps me going is actually meeting a lot of these volunteers and hearing a lot of these stories because while I'm frustrated at the system um, and the hostility and the brutality of the system every time I go out um, on, uh, on, on the ground and meet our projects our volunteers our members and I hear how much love and compassion and passion they have to help people and how proactive really and incredibly skillful and resourceful they are that gives me a lot of hope and it's hope that I don't get from looking at the media which paints a really bleak picture but actually what I see when I talk to people um, all over the country is that there is a lot of love in communities there's a lot of willingness to welcome um, other people and to to make space in their communities to learn a new language, a new food, a new recipe. So that that definitely keeps me going. Um, so talk to people. And you know what, what what I think more campaigns and campaigners could actually learn from that is this idea of it being a recipe, it being a blend, it being bringing together all of these different people and cultures and experiences, but also this idea of love and. I was going to only ask one more question, but I'm actually going to ask two. And I, I guess I'm interested, you know, from my now sadly lapsed Catholicism, but St. Vincent de Paul was obviously like a noted, I'm going to say Catholic saint, wasn't he? Yeah. What role does, does faith play in the role of the charity? Is it, is it part of, is it still a critical part of what you're doing? And I'd just love to hear a little bit about that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question. So for those of you who don't know, uh, the SVP. Um, so we're a national Catholic charity, but we're a lay charity. So we operate as a as an independent charity, making our own decisions, setting our own priorities. And we work. We've been working in England and Wales for about two hundred years now, um, and we work in communities across England and Wales. And we offer support to people facing poverty in all of its forms. Uh, we operate a network, we have a network of about 9,000 members um, or volunteers, mostly operate, um, uh, they build a conference or a group around the local parish, but not necessarily, and we also have nine centres across England and Wales who help people in their community, whatever that is, from food banks to soup kitchens, visiting people in prisons, helping people in hotels, I could go on for a while, but I think you get the picture. So we're we're a Catholic charity, yes, and and Catholic social teaching and social justice is very much 
part of um, of our work in our ethos. But I think that really the, the the crux of that, the the key point, is that all of all of our work, the essence of our work, is befriending and building those relationships with with people. Is not just about charity. Is not just about giving um, food to someone, which is of course extremely important. But it's about building those relationships, and that enables us to. Um, to help people in, in all sorts of ways, um, regardless of where they come from, their religion, their ethnicity, um, just based on needs, really. Um, and as I said at the beginning, uh, really our vision is, is, is one where poverty, low wages and discrimination don't hold people back. And, and we really think that this can be done and it can be done by building relationships with, with people. And I love what you've just said there. And, you know, the things that really leapt out at me were this idea of like how you're bearing witness, but how you're also just trying to build that agency at the same time. And so my, now I promise this is my final question to you, Alessandra. But for people that are listening to this um, and they'll be listening on sort of uh, on 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 uh, catch up rather than live, what would you actually like them to do to sort of help build this vision sooner what's please you know whatever your uh, whatever you need put it out there and let's see what people come up with fantastic uh well i'd encourage everyone to learn more about the svp and um, you can visit our website which is svp.org.uk all of our resources are there if you're interested you're very welcome to to join us as a member as well um but really just just engage with us we have a conference we have about 800 groups over 800 groups across the country so wherever you're listening from it's highly likely that there would be a local group to you everyone is really really friendly so just just go along um as i said we we work in all areas of of um tackling poverty discrimination and inequality so if you're interested in this um do join us what a uh, rallying cry alessandra thank you so so much for your time it's been a huge pleasure to uh spend time with you um folks thanks a lot for listening to uh, light the fuse today if you've enjoyed what you've heard please check out the svp it will be uh, i'll put the link in the show notes as well as uh what alessandra has just said and also don't forget that uh if you've enjoyed the podcast please leave a review on apple um ideally five stars, but maybe even one star because notoriety. What did Oscar Wilde said? The only thing that's worse than not being known is uh, or, or is not being known at all. I've said that wrong. Anyway, let's just end on that. I can always dub that over in post. Alessandra, thank you so much. And uh, thanks all for listening. Thank you.